0: We got any new batteries? I just looked at that. I thought it was good. Is it good. Yeah. Okay. It's got two batteries in there. I think it'll. I think it'll make it. All right. Hebrews 10, chapter 24. Remember last week in this study, he explained the the, uh, privileges that we have in Christ, and he finished out with the fact that Christ became the sacrifice for our sin. And then, in this section, we're studying this, this morning. His object is to encourage these Hebrews not to go back to the old system, which had nothing to offer. It was it had finished its purpose. It was over finalized. But because they had been raised in it, it'd be awful easy for them to go back to that old system. And so, in verse, picking up where we're at this morning, verse twenty-four. He says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Spur one another on. Now, when's a good time to do that? When we're together. Now, that says a lot about gathering, doesn't it? To spur one another on. You know, we're so selfish sometimes. We're raised that way in a a culture of selfishness where we don't think of others. And we obey the gospel, we still don't think of others. We just think of ourselves. But do you see here an obligation you have out of love to spur one another on? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, but... I just wanted you to see, this is just one of many reasons why we assemble together. Many reasons. And this is just one of them. uh, Many. Uh, To spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 23 and 24 of this chapter seems to indicate that some of the readers of this book were reverting back to the old Hebrew system. And this disturbed Paul considerably. And therefore, Christians must monitor the spiritual status of one another. Let me talk about that a little bit. Monitor the spiritual status of one another. We have to be careful about meddling in other people's business. We've we're not been set up as lords over one another. We haven't been set up as sheriffs with a badge to enforce anything. But out of love, we're to consider one another and to provoke one another to love. Now that provoking has to be done in a delicate way, doesn't it? You don't want to interfere with a person's free moral agency. You don't want to walk on their dignity. And so there's a lot to be considered in that. But nevertheless, we have the duty here to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Spur one another. They put spurs on us on your boots so that when you ride a horse you can get his attention to move him. Well, you've got to get a person's attention to spur him on. But that's got to be done in a way that doesn't offend them. There's a lot to think about there. We won't even go into this morning. Uh, therefore, Christians have the duty they must monitor the spiritual status of one another monitor the spiritual status of one another in other words if i'm concerned about you if i have a love for you as a brother or sister i watch you and i see you when your face shows uh a withdrawing or a sadness that shouldn't be there, in view of what you have in Christ. Your life may have beat the hell out of you during the week, but a Christian can come together with a smile after having the hell kicked out of him. You believe that? And you and I, the Lord said, the eyes are the, are the light of the soul. And you can see despondency, despair in the eyes of a person. You can see rebellion, uh, resentment. uh, Well, we could go on and on, but you can see a lot of things in the eyes of a person. They used to talk about the gunfighter. He watched the eyes of the guy he's he's facing because the eyes are going to tell him when he's going to reach for that pistol. Anyway, that really didn't have anything to do with this morning, did it? (laughs) (laughs) They must literally prod each other to love toward God and good deeds toward one another. Have you ever stopped to think about the good deeds that you have opportunity to do and never do? You ever think about that toward others? You see somebody that you haven't seen for a couple of weeks, maybe they haven't attended. Maybe all they need is just you to go by and say hi. But the devil has us on a treadmill, doesn't he? We're running with a concern for money and more money, toys, and more toys. And in the process, we're blinded to, we're like a horse with blinders. The only thing we can see is him money and the toys out in front of us. We don't see our brother falling by the wayside over here. And we don't really care, because it's too easy to say, well, it's his fault. It's, it's his problem, not mine. That's a good way to cop out on it, isn't it? Isn't it? I'm a strong man and he's just a weakling. Isn't that an easy way to fall out of that? So the Christian must monitor the spiritual status of one another. They must literally prod each other to love toward God and good deeds toward each other this is one of the other purposes for drawing near in collective assemblies I'm going to say that again this is the very reason just one but this is the reason why we're to draw near to one another in collective assemblies and of course does anybody doubt what collective assemblies is well in our situation of Benton City it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever we have a party or a get together. Uh, Let me ask you something, how do you go to a party? Is it with the thought of how much fun you're gonna have and the people you're gonna meet? Or is it what you might be able to help somebody else with? You ever thought about that? Now, a selfish person only looks for self, you know. Oh man, it's gonna be great. There's gonna be those people there that I like and those people that I like and those people and those others, well, why they coming out? Not, it's not the matter. But a, a person that loves the congregation, loves one another, he's kind of concerned if his brother doesn't come. If he's got a brother that may not attend and he knows it from what he said in the past, wouldn't he give him a call and encourage him to come to a party or whatever it is, a gathering? (coughs) Now, just some some suggestions. Uh, But that's one of the purposes of our drawing uh, near in a collective assembly. Of course, a uh, major purpose is to worship God. We know that. We understand that. But those assemblies are useful for the opportunity they give to us to consider how we may spur one another on. And so if I see you downhearted, if I see in your face a kind of a despondency. Well, that ought to alarm me. That ought to concern me because of my love for you. And I'll find some way to cheer you up. Now, with little kids, it's just buying them ice cream cone. (laughs) Or a lollipop. But with adults, it might take something a little better. It might take you to invite them out to coffee because there's one thing about inviting somebody to coffee. You don't have to bring up the problem that they're having, but what's the main thing on their mind, their problem? Won't it surface sooner or later if you're just kind and smiling to them and enjoying coffee and talking about the weather? Won't it surface? Yeah. Oh, but I'm too busy for that. I, I, I got an appointment over here. I got an appointment over there and hell, the devil's got me running so fast. I ain't got time for that nonsense. We never think about that. The best way to spur a weak Christian is to remind him of all of the privileges that we now enjoy in Christ which were impossible under the old Levitical system. And of course here, he's talking more specific to the Hebrew than he is you and me, because they're prone, this whole book was a fear that they might go back to the old system. And so the admonition here is to these Hebrews, listen, when you go visit your buddy Find some way to inject into the conversation the beauty and the grandeur of what we have in Christ that we never had under that old Hebrew system. Because uh, the old Hebrew system of offering animal sacrifices, what did it do? It reminded them that they had to do the same thing next year for sin and the next year for sin and the next year for sin. It reminded them that the completeness of God's plan had not come yet. That those things, those animal sacrifices, merely spoke of what was coming that would be perfect. Verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. This is definitely talking about Sunday morning. But the day approaching is not the Sunday morning. So don't get that idea. The giving up meeting together, as it says there in the Greek, has the force of not divorcing from those meetings. Don't divorce yourself from them. That's easy to do, isn't it? It has already become the habit of some to do so. And of course, a habit, we know, is a settled practice. And it gets easier and easier. Have you noticed that there's a lot of people that uh, only comes on Sunday morning? And have you also noticed all the benefits that they miss out on in our studies of God's Word on Sunday evening and on Wednesday evening? Well, that's their choice. They can do that if they want to, but look what they're missing out on. But they have a settled habit of doing that. Maybe they've sold herself on this idea that all that's required of me is to come when we eat the cracker and drink the juice and the rest of us just boo or has no value because if you don't attend, you're telling you're telling others and you're telling yourself it has no value. let's suppose that the teacher's no good. He ain't the only one who has a right to teach. Can you politely inject thoughts and, and things and understanding into the study into a collective Bible study? Conrad you sit back there you're a member of this congregation and I'm sure you feel a responsibility if there's something said Uh, we don't get in big arguments with one another and cuss one another out but we politely in love raise our hand or whatever and the teacher if he's in love with the congregation he asked you What is it, Conrad? And you have a right to speak your piece on what you think that text that we're studying has to say. And that's how we grow together, and that's how we develop together, and that's how we share with one another. We don't come up here just to watch some idiot like me up here uh, performing, as it were. We're a part of this congregation. Is there anything wrong with saying amen to something that just overwhelms you? No. It's true in an overwhelming way? No. <laughs> Is there anything wrong with hallelujah? Okay. I'm really gonna shock you now. I'm gonna shock you. But I'm asking you honestly. Is there anything wrong if someone uh, comes to join this congregation and become a member of it by baptism and he has a has had a lifelong uh, practice of doing this? Is there anything wrong with that? No. Huh. He wants to do that. If that means something to him, In his praise to God, it shouldn't offend you, should it? No. So, (laughs) there's a lot of things to consider when we're dealing with a brother. His background, what he come out of. And there's also a lot of patience that needs to be involved in dealing with one another. And love uh, has patience, doesn't it? All right, so uh, this language here in verse uh, 25 would not well apply to a person who occasionally misses a church service. That's not talking about somebody who just occasionally misses. It more properly defines one who has totally given up on such assemblies probably because he's losing his faith in Christ. That's probably the reason why. He is likely returning to the assemblies of the Jews in their synagogue on a Sabbath. <clears throat> now remember, this book is called Hebrews. You're not a Hebrew. You're written Hebrews. All oh, there's much rich teaching for you and I, but still, in all, this book was written to encourage the Hebrew don't go back to that old system, don't go back to that synagogue that you worshiped in for if you're 50 years old, maybe 50, 60 years you've been worshiping there. Don't go back to that. It'd be awful easy because we're creatures of habit, you know, a man learning not to cuss anymore uh, I've worked with some cussers, boy like you wouldn't believe every, every other word <laughs> was a cuss word and I've seen them obey the gospel and I've seen them have problems uh, getting over that because it's a habit, we're creatures of habit and so all that's, love considers all that and love has the patience to wait a little bit but those Hebrew gatherings are no longer valid before God. For the total system has been removed with the inauguration of the new system of Christ. Verse 24 had encouraged them to consider, that it was the word it used, consider how to spur each other to hold unswervingly to their hope in Christ. Something that's real dear, you hold unswervingly to it, don't you? I just got a new watch that talks to me and I'm holding unswervingly to it. In fact, it is fastened to my wrist. so don't mess with my left arm <laughs> I'm holding on to it unswervingly it is evident the writer is referring to church meetings on the Lord's Day okay now your King James says it this way and uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That's how the King James says it. And uh, it evidently, uh, evidently the writer here is referring to church meetings on the Lord's Day. For it is on that day that Christians enjoy the privilege of collective worship in the throne room. And so the plea is to hold unswervingly to that privilege. This verse really demands that Christians exhort one another. That is the force of the word that is translated here with the word encourage. How's the best way to exhort one another? Hebrews 13 verse 22 says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my words of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. So the point of that uh, citation, of that verse, is that the whole book of Hebrews is written as an exhortation, exhorting them. He doesn't command anything. He exhorts and he warns in love. He wants them to understand what's happening to them if they drift away in any shape or form. So with the explanation of the deity and uh, humanity of Christ, as the priest whose sacrifice of himself mediates a new covenant and establishes a new sanctuary relation with God, a reader should be exhorted to hold tenaciously to his faith in Christ for the privileges that Christ brings. Evidently, people who drift away don't see any worth in what Christ offers. They either don't understand it or they don't see no worth in it. And of course, I can't really correlate how anybody can understand it and not see the worth. But that could be. It would be good to to use this book as subject matter when dealing with a Christian who is straying away from Christ. What better message could be given than the promises of God through Christ, the privileges of those who believe, and the peril of those who depart from Christ? Now, there was three key words in just what I read to you. The promises, the privileges, and the peril, if you don't. Promises, privileges, and pure. All these subjects are adequately presented in this book of Hebrews. And so if you were dealing with someone whose faith is waning, <coughs> there would be a good place to start in the book of Hebrews. For the second chapter, verse one and two starts right out with that loving admonition. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard. If you're talking to a brother, you could say that in your own words. We ought to give the more earnest heed, Joe, to the things which we've heard lest any time we drift away from them, knowing that the word spoken by angels was steadfast, unmovable, and every transgression in the Old Testament received a just recompense of reward, Job, how do you think we're going to escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, the apostles. Verse four, verse four, uh, four. God also bearing them witness with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. So I think you can see how we could use the Book of Hebrews to talk to a brother that's maybe. Of course, this is all at his invitation, if you can get around it. You have to be cunning enough to lead the conversation around to what you want to get to, don't you? And don't we all have that ability? Of course, some of us are just blunt. Look at her! I got an engagement ring! I mean, we make no holes about things like that, because we know everybody's going to be happy with it. But there are other things that we need to think about how we can go over and smile at them and drink their coffee, or they can drink ours, either one, and we can begin to come into a conversation about what their problem is. Now, what's some of the ways not to do What's your problem, idiot? What's your problem, bud? That's no way to start, is it? All right. Uh The encouragement should be all the more intense as you see the day approaching. Now notice the day that's spoken of is not the Lord's day. That is not Sunday. They were to use the Lord's day assemblies to encourage each other in view of the day approaching. And so it's speaking of meeting on Sunday. And on Sunday was when you was to exhort one another about this day that is approaching. It's not Sunday, because you're there Sunday warning about this day of approaching, exhorting one another to be more alarmed about it. All right, so we're gonna have to look and see what this day approaching is. Therefore, what was the day? it was a specific the day. Now, Sunday is a day, isn't it? Because there's one every week. The day. When you put the in the place of a, what have you done? You've designated it as a one-time, specific event, haven't you? And that's what he does. So when they gather on Sunday to exhort one another, the exhortation and the the exhorting is not only for sake of the assembly, but also in recognition of the day that's approaching. All right. So they were to use the Lord's Day's assembly to encourage each other in view of the day approaching. Therefore, what was the day? It was a specific the day. That's what the text says. Various suggestions have been made by students and teachers over the years on what day is intended there. There seems to be at least four suggested possibilities from which to select. And I'm going to go through them four possibilities. Number one the day would be the Lord's day. That's some people's argument. But that seems to be discounted because it was to be used in stimulation of each other in view of the day under consideration. And the all the more that stated there in that verse would hardly fit into their weekly assemblies. It rather seems evident that it was a day on the near horizon for those readers. Number two, it's been suggested that it's talking about the day of judgment. The day of judgment has been suggested as an optional view for defining the day. But in view of the fact that Judgment Day will come, how does Judgment Day come? As a thief in the night. Ain't that what Jesus said? According to all New Testament information on the subject, it does not seem likely that such a view could be given much credit because there too Exhort one another all the more as they see the day approaching. You don't know when that day's coming for you, do you? Because Jesus said it'll come as a thief in a night. So how could you exhort one another all the more as you see the day approaching? Number three. The day has been suggested as the day of each person's death. But that seems to be remote to the context of this book uh, that it hardly deserves further consideration because few people can see the day of their death approaching. Some can, most can't. Number four. And this is the reality. Now, we had to go through these because I've... After 81 years, I've seen people with all these confusions and they will argue bitterly for all three of these, but they don't seem to see the fourth one, which is the reality of that day that they're to be warned, they're to uh, see approaching. The day most suited to the context of this book seems to be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. So these Hebrews at the time this book was written was right on the verge of that destruction <coughs> AD 70. And consequently, when they gathered on Sunday, the writer says, uh, uh, he says, uh, let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Very special day, the day. Well, what day would that be to the Hebrews 2,000 years ago? Hadn't they been warned about it? Hadn't Jesus told them how to identify it and see it's coming? Well, let's go through that. There are a number of facts that comfort this view. Jesus had already told his disciples of the total destruction of Jerusalem. There wouldn't be one stone left upon another. The Romans' hatred for the Jew was so tremendous that that destruction wouldn't leave one stone of Jerusalem left upon top of another. There are there are a number of uh, facts that confront, uh, comfort uh, this view. Jesus had clearly told his disciples of the total destruction of Jerusalem of its temple and most of its people in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 17, and Luke 21. He had given them their visible signs to identify the arrival of that day. And so the Hebrew writer says, that you need to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. There were some things about that day that they were to be able to see visibly and identify that day, that one specific day. Okay. He said in those gospel records cited that he personally did not know the exact day Jerusalem would fall Uh, that it would fall prey to the Romans. Matthew 24, verse 36. But he did say that it would happen in that generation. And that's the generation that the Hebrew writer is writing to. Matthew 24, 34. Mark 13, 30. Luke twenty-one thirty-two. Jesus had foretold the vengeance of God that would come upon this generation. Matthew twenty-three verse thirty-six. The vengeance of God. We saw the vengeance of God when he brought the Assyrians down on 10 tribes in 721, didn't we? On Israel. Annihilated them. Carried them off into captivity. He told the Assyrians, Ho Assyria, (coughs) the Lord of my anger, in whose hand is the staff of my indignation, come over and trample them down like the mire in the street take the spoil take the prey they did didn't they and then he said in the next verse they didn't mean to do so they didn't know they were serving God but can God use the enemy to do what he wants can he put it in their little pea brain to do what he wants And that's exactly what he did. All right. So he had foretold the vengeance of God that would come upon this generation. And therefore, all those early Christians knew that such a day was coming. They all knew it. And that's why the writer said, uh, exhort one another more so as you see the day approaching. Because they could all see it. They'd all heard Jesus teach on Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. When it did come, they were to flee the city of Jerusalem. Otherwise they would be taken with the unbelievers among the Jews. The Romans would spare none, and they didn't. Jesus had pointed to things his people could see to indicate the arrival of that day, so they could see them, couldn't they? And that's what the Hebrew writer said: as you see the day approaching, exhort one another, and the more as you see the day approaching, so they could see it. Matthew twenty-four, twenty-eight verse 33 and verse 42 Mark 13:29 Luke 17:37 and Luke 21:20 20. So this latter verse is particularly graphic. He said again, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is now. So in view of these evidences, the disciples would easily See the day approaching that's being discussed here in verse 25. We're going to have to stop right there. Time's up. Done today then.